The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. Let's now go to God's Word as we continue in our, in our worship. We're continuing in our series through the book of Acts. And we've really begun just looking at this message in the book of Acts. And we've come to a very famous and well-known event in the Bible. And that is known as the event of Pentecost, when the gift of God the Holy Spirit, was poured out on Jesus' followers. Such a necessary event in the life of the early church. Um, it, is, it is one that Jesus tells his disciples will empower them uh, and, and enable them to engage in his mission. And it's an it's event that he says, wait until the Holy Spirit comes before you even go out and do ministry in my name. And that's how important it is. And so we'll read about that event today and we'll learn We'll learn about uh, what has happened and how it applies to our life, what God has for us. Let's listen to God's word, uh, starting in chapter 1, Acts chapter, I'm sorry, chapter 2, starting in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Alamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? And others mocked, saying, They're filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall, see, shall, shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood. Before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is God's word. What an amazing event. This event is so dramatic. It is so extraordinary. It is so amazing. And let's be honest, it is also very confusing. We are led to ask the same question that people asked as they observed this event happening, which was, what does this mean? 
What is happening and what is its significance? The ultimate answer is from Peter as he, uh, in his sermon that follows in Acts 2. And I want you to see it in this way as we work through this passage. We understand that there are Old Testament people. You understand that. You've heard about the Old Testament people. And you know that there are New Testament people, the New Testament people of God. And it is in this event that the Old Testament people became the New Testament people of God. It is the dramatic event that marks a new life through the Holy Spirit that will look radically different from an old way of living. It is a way of God's presence with His people that changes them and makes them new forever. The gift of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost is that dramatic marking in history when God is doing a dramatic and remarkable and an extraordinary new thing. So now we need to talk about and answer the very question that these people ask. What does it mean? What does it mean that God is doing this new work? The Spirit of God was poured out and was accompanied by three signs, a strange wind, a strange sight, and a strange speech. To be filled with the Spirit means this. Let's, let's talk about these things first. It is new freedom in the power of God. New freedom through God's power. Let's look at that first phenomenon that happened, this strange sound, the sound of a strong wind that happened. It wasn't a strong wind, but the Bible tells us that it was like a strong wind. It came from heaven. The origin of this this phenomenon was outside of them. It was well beyond uh, their own presence. It made its way to them. It's quite an image. I want you to put yourself in this, in this place, in this room, and picture this happening. It's quite extraordinary. It came like a strong wind. We were in Mexico uh, 10 years ago during Hurricane Dolly. When Hurricane Dolly made its way through the Yucatan Peninsula and then ultimately hit in South Texas, and the winds there, we were locked inside of our hotel for about 36 hours, a day and a half. And we couldn't go outside. It was dangerous. And at that time, it was only a tropical storm, but the winds were 75 miles an hour. Palm trees were half bent over. I mean, it was amazing. Have you ever been in the presence of a hurricane or a tropical storm? Have you ever experienced something so magnificent like that? It is so obvious when you see something that, experiencing something like that, you are so aware this is transcendent in the sense that this is beyond us. This is outside of us. This is a power that did not originate within us. And yet it's present with us. It has come to us. It's making its way to us. That's what they are experiencing. This amazing thing that seemed and sounded like a strong wind was making its way to them. Everyone felt it. Everyone saw it and heard it. What does it mean? What does it mean that there's this new freedom through God's power? It means that to be filled with the Spirit, to experience the power of the Holy Spirit in our life is not something that just merely happens to us emotionally. The power of the Holy Spirit, the feeling that comes upon us, is not just an emotional interaction with God. It is beyond the normal human experience, and yet it's come to us from the outside. It's not a feeling that bubbles up within us, that we stir within us. To have the Holy Spirit is to have, literally, an outside power that has made its way to fill our lives. 
And therefore, what it means to be a Christian is really, it, we are put at odds of what it means to be a Christian. It puts at odds everything that the culture believes and what it means to find your true self, to live your best life, to live in the ultimate freedom of health and fruitfulness. See, the culture tells us that everything, within, that everything that you need originates from within yourself. Everything you need to be the ultimate, true, and best form of yourself comes from within. The culture tells us that problems are outside of us, not within us. And do you realize the Bible tells us the exact opposite? The problems are actually within us. And when they pour out into a life of words and actions and lifestyle, it creates that brokenness in the world that we experience. The world says that people are miserable because they're letting bad things influence their life. The Bible tells us that we are miserable and it overflows into a life that is lived. The world is miserable not because there's something on the outside that is bad, but there's something on the inside. Uh, I want you to tell you about the Bergen. You guys may be familiar with the Bergen. I think I've told this story before. You know the movie Trolls? Okay. You with me? Now you're with me. Finally, something you can relate to. Uh, <clears throat> as it goes, the Bergen were, they didn't know how to dance or sing, and they were the, of, the, among the most miserable creatures in all the world. And they, uh, the only way to make themselves happy was to eat trolls. But here's the problem. Trolls didn't want to be eaten. They wanted to live. Right? Uh, one of the trolls says in despair, you have to eat a troll to be happy. Everyone knows that. To which, uh, to which Princess Poppy replies, uh, happiness is not something that you put inside. It's already there. You just need someone to help you find it. It's like what G.K. Chesterton said 100 years ago. He once responded to a newspaper that asked a question and asked people to respond, what's wrong with the world? And he responded with these two words, I am. You see, the culture says happiness comes from within. And this idea that we need somebody or something to contribute to our happiness is a lie. And that the Bible says, if we want real freedom, if we want real life, if we want real happiness, joy, and an ultimate sense of living out what we were created to be, it needs to come from the outside. It needs to come from God. What does the miraculous event of Pentecost mean? Of God's Holy Spirit, His Spirit being poured out on His people. It means this, if you really want to live your best life, if you want to live in, fr in freedom, if you want to find your true self, who has God made you to be? It will only come through the power of God coming into your life and changing you. Changing you from who you are. It's not a matter of mere emotion. It's not a matter of feeling better about yourself. That's not what it means to be a Christian. It means that God's foreign power has made his way into your life and extended grace and love to you and has changed you and is changing you from one degree of his likeness to the next. It's from the outside. Pentecost is such a gift. The, 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 the Holy Spirit is such a gift in our life. Because it is the means, it is the only means by which we are made new. 
What else does Pentecost teach us as we answer this question, what does this mean? It means this, that the new joy through God's presence. The second phenomenon was something that appeared to be like small tongues of fire resting above the heads of each person gathered there. What a sight. What a sight to observe. Here's how significant this is. In the Old Testament, when God wanted to let his people know that he was among them, with them, guiding them, present with them, he would appear to them as fire. When God made himself known to Abraham, he came to him as a, as a pillar of fire. When he revealed himself to Moses, he came to him as fire in a burning bush, speaking to Moses from a burning bush. When the Israelites were traveling at night through the desert, and as God desired to tell them, even as you are traveling, I'm always with you, he guided their way by night as a pillar of fire. What does it mean? We should keep asking that question. What does it mean? To whom did this fire come and rest upon? Luke is very clear. Each and every one. He is very clear. He goes at good length to make sure that he's describing these events very carefully. And he doesn't tell us anything more than what we need or less. He tells us exactly what we need to know about answering the question, what does this mean? It means that the power of God, the presence of God, the unique glory and goodness and residence of God in his people does not come merely to the leaders of the church. It doesn't come just to those who are mature in their faith or spiritual or of good character or record. Luke says he comes to each and every one. That fire is divided and rests upon every single one. Individual torches. What does it mean? What does it mean? Individual torches of God's presence on his people. Here's what it means. Do you see this? Every person now becomes the burning bush of God's presence. Every Christian, every believer is now a pillar of God's presence. Every believer knows the way to God because God has come to each and every one, guiding the way, showing the way, speaking the truth, showing himself present to them. The Spirit is the way that Jesus connects himself to the church, to his disciples. The Holy Spirit is the way that Jesus connects himself to you. This event is so significant, it had to happen if we wanted to have a relationship with God in one that was personal, in a bond of friendship that was authentic and meaningful and real. The fellowship of the Holy Spirit is the only possible way that Jesus can say to you and me, I am with you to the end of the age and I will never leave you. It's the only way that that could be true. When the Holy Spirit comes down and rests on them, it would mean that God himself would become to each and every Christian an individual possession. He would belong to them, and they would belong to him. You know, before Jesus' death, he he met with his disciples, he gathered them, and he told them something so, so sweet and intimate and meaningful, as if everything kind of slowed down. He says, I want you to know something. I'm leaving soon. And I'm going to a place, and I'm sorry to say you can't follow me there. And the disciples, obviously, they'd misunderstood it at the time. They thought, oh, where are you going? I mean, tell us how to go, and we'll, we'll, we'll come. He says, I'm going to a place that you cannot come. 
but don't be afraid. I'm going to send some, I'm going to send a helper. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you, and he'll comfort you, and he will be with you forever. And Jesus, in this conversation, tells them many other things. Notably, he talks about who they are. He says, you're not an orphan anymore. You're a child. You're, you're, you're God's child. You're, you're, not a, you're not a slave or a stranger. You're a friend. You're not distant from God, but he is with you. And what happened when the Holy Spirit came, when, what happened on the day of Pentecost is that the disciples were able to internalize the truths of what it meant that they belonged to God and God belonged to him, them. In a relationship marked by this unbreakable uh, bond of friendship and peace and love, and it filled them with joy. For the first time, they were filled with the reality and awareness. And for the first time, they really, truly internalized what it meant that God was their possession, and they were God's possession. They belonged to Him, and He belonged to them. For the first time, they realized what it really meant. How do I know that they were filled with joy? Because everybody thought they were drunk, <laughs> okay? Everyone thought that they were drunk. It, it's the same drunk. Drunk was, drunk's drunk no matter what era you live in, okay? Drunk was then, drunk is now. If you're really spirit-filled, you are, you're not happy because you have convinced yourself that you're a Christian and you should be happy. You're happy, you're filled with joy because you have truly internalized what it means to belong to Jesus and that he belongs to you. And whatever is going on in your life pales in comparison. Every sorrow, every grief, those things might not, much, might, might not change, but you have this unshakable, unspeakable presence of joy in your life, not because you have turned from reality and focused on something else, but precisely because you have focused straight on on what is true. And it's filled you with joy that you belong to Jesus. You're happy because you've convinced yourself that you are truly loved, that God has shown himself truly for you. And the presence of God is in your life that is undeniable. And you know that nothing will take that away. And you're happy. How is it, how is it like being drunk? And let's talk about how it's not like being drunk too, right? Because it's not all just like being drunk. How is it like being drunk? There was a joyful, they were joyfully uninhibited. Joyfully uninhibited, yet fearless. Fearless, confident, and fully in control. Fully in control. This is how it is like being drunk. They were joyfully uninhibited. To know the love of God in such a way that it makes them joyful and fearless. How is it not like being drunk? The fruit of the presence of the Spirit is control. They weren't out of control. They weren't belligerent. They weren't reckless. The reason drunk people are happy I'm not done talking about this, <laughs> is because they have forgotten reality. I've heard. The reason, the reason people are happy when they're drunk is because for a moment they have turned from the reality of their life and been become distracted from reality. The reason those filled with the Spirit are happy is precisely because of the opposite. They've grasped reality. They've turned to reality. 
and the truth of God's love, and it's filled them with a joyful, uninhibited happiness. Being filled with the Spirit is like being drunk, and it's not like being drunk. It's like being drunk in the sense that it fills you with joy because you've grasped a picture of what's really going on in your life. That's why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, he says, don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. He says it's kind of like being drunk, but it's not like being drunk. It's kind of like being drunk. Don't get drunk because you're wishing to either escape the present reality or you're wishing to fill yourself with a broken form of happiness, if even for a moment. Face reality and see that you have Jesus and see that the gift of His love and grace for you is so good that it will not only make you truly joyful, it will make you fearless, confident, and in control. I believe that most of us believers, that most, for most believers, when um, we, we believe that when God is with us, that we believe that we have the Holy Spirit, we believe that, that all Christians have the gift of the Holy Spirit, but, if we wonder, but I wonder if we've truly internalized what it really means, that the presence of God dwells in us and makes us new and gives us joy through His presence. Consider this, if you woke up tomorrow and the first thing that you realized was that the Holy Spirit had been taken from you, would it make any difference in your life? If the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, would there be a mark a marked difference in your life if you found out the Holy Spirit had been ripped from you? Would it make a difference? You know, that's the difference between truly internalizing the reality that we have God in our life and that the, that the Holy Spirit is a gift from God to, to empower us, to fill us with joy, to, to sharpen us, to help us face the reality of our sin, the reality of His grace to us, so that it changes us, changes who we are and how we act. What does Pentecost mean? It means that the, fu- the fullness of the presence of God makes us know the truth of our sin and reveals to us the truth of God's love, and it leaves us incredibly filled with joy because of Jesus, unafraid. You see, in the Old Testament, when God's people, when they were approaching God as a presence of fire, when, when Moses was receiving the word of God, the law of God on Mount Sinai, it was like a fiery mountain that if they came close, they would die. And so the presence of God was one of fear. The presence of God was one of danger, and it would kill them. And so they needed a mediator. So they said, hey, Moses, why don't you go up, climb up that mountain for us? <clears throat> you know, because, you know, we're all busy. No, they were afraid of God, as they ought to be, because God is an all-consuming fire. What does Pentecost mean? Now we can get close to God. 
Now we can be with God. Now God can take up residence in us. And not only are we not destroyed, we are filled with the fullness of his joy. That's what Pentecost is all about. Isn't that amazing? This reversal, this presence of God that divides like fire and rests among each of God's people, we don't have to be afraid because of our sin. We don't have to be afraid because of the presence of our sin. We don't have to be afraid, not because we have convinced ourselves that we're better than we are, but because we've been convinced of who God is and what he's done for us. We have faced reality. We are unworthy of the presence of God in our life and should be destroyed. And by his grace, he lived our life. He died our death. He rose from the grave in triumph over sin and hell. And he gives us the gift of his presence. What a gracious God. What does Pentecost mean? What else does it mean? It means a new community through God's unity. You know, we've talked about this in previous weeks and we'll talk about it again because it's prominent. It is a prominent theme in the book of Acts, in the message of Acts, and it's a specific manifestation of the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of God's people. You may see all these people speaking in different languages, in different tongues, as it mentions, and you might say, oh, I know where this is going. This is Pentecostalism, right? This is charismatics. Okay, that's where we're going. Wasn't expecting that today. But actually, what's happening in this passage is, is different, entirely different from the kind of speaking in tongues that's, that is mentioned in, in, in elsewhere in the New Testament. There is not here, there is not incoherent utterances. Uh, it is not strange sounds, but actual languages, actual dialects, actual languages of surrounding nations. And Luke expands on these languages represented. Why does he do that? Did you see, did you see me struggle through reading all these names? Were you nervous for me as I was reading those names? Why does Luke take the time, the tedious work of writing all of these locations? Wouldn't it have been easy for him to say, there's a bunch of people around from a bunch of different countries? Wouldn't it be easy for me to say, yada, 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 there's different languages? Luke wants us to know something. And I want you to know something. The very first time the gospel is ever preached in the New Testament, God wants us to know it is preached in every single language. The first time that the wonders of God and the gift of the Spirit are given to his people, the first time it is preached, God wants us to know it's going to be preached in every tongue, everyone represented, every nation, every language. Why does God carefully orchestrate this amazing phenomenon? to show us this. There's not a single culture on this earth to which we can say, that's the Christian culture. There's not a single language on earth to which we can say, that's what a Christian sounds like. If you've ever had a conversation with a Muslim regarding the Word of God and God, how God speaks, you would know that God speaks Arabic. The Bible can't be God's word. Why? Because it's not in Arabic. We've had these, I've had these conversations. They've been 
more or less very good and productive and, and fruitful. But as I talk to Muslims, and as I have at different times, and we, we talk about the Bible, we talk about what the Bible says, there's great confusion that comes over their minds and over their face. How could this be? You talk about God speaking. God speaks in one language. He speaks in Arabic. Even translations of the Quran are not God's word. They are merely summaries of God's word. God's word is in Arabic. God wants us to know that he forbids any culture becoming the dominant culture for Christianity. Christianity is the most culturally diverse religion in the entire world because that's the way the Holy Spirit wants it. That's the way the Holy Spirit wants it. The power of the Holy Spirit to enable the disciples to speak in different languages symbolizes a new unity in the Spirit, a new unity in the Spirit that transcends race and nationality and language. It is a miracle that breaks down barriers, breaks down pride of cultures and, and people groups to say, this is what it means to be a Christian, is to look and sound and act like us in regards to music and dress <clears throat> and, and, uh, and, and habits and uh, practices and even the way we the way, we, the way we sing, the music we like. The power of the Spirit. Pentecost, the gift of God on His people to show us that He, that His kingdom is made up of all people. You know, Luke goes at great lengths to point this out. And so we see that Pentecost means this new freedom. New freedom to actually find who we truly are. And it comes from this gift from the outside of God making his way to us. This, he takes this initiative. It's the, our life and our newness of life comes from the initiative of God. And we see that Pentecost means new joy. Not new joy in, in diverting ourselves from reality, but actually facing re, the reality of our sin and the love of God. And it comes with new unity in his new community that he is gathering together, that is bound together by the gift of his Spirit. What do you and I have together? Some of us, very little. But the Holy Spirit's presence in our life that has, he's been, that has divided among us, dwelling within us, that makes us brothers and sisters forever. And lastly, we see that Pentecost means a new hope, a new hope through God's good news. The best way to understand Pentecost, as I mentioned earlier, is to, is to look at Peter's answer to their question, what does this mean? And in verse 22, he says, hear these words. It is, it is Peter's way of saying, I'm going to tell you what it means. And I need you to listen to this because this is really important. Listen to what I'm about to say very carefully. And then he tells the story of Jesus. He starts with Jesus as a man. He says Jesus was a man. And then he shows that even though he was a man, God showed Jesus uh, to be uh, not only just a man, but he showed him to also be God through the works that he did, through the, the miracles, through his signs and wonders that he did. And he was killed, not primarily by Rome, not by pr primarily by the soldiers or because Judas betrayed him, but because it was God's purpose all along to bring redemption 
to God's people through sacrificing his son. But Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave and he gave him new life. And God gave Jesus supreme honor and authority and power over all the world. And having power over all, what you see is that he has given us as a gift his Holy Spirit, like he said he would. And then he says, everyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. Everyone who believes in him and recognizes who he is and what he has done for them and calls upon his name for mercy, every single one will have this gift, the gift of God's presence, the gift of God's renewal, the gift of God's redemption, forgiveness of sins. Everyone will have it. And as Peter is telling this story, there is no doubt as, as they are witnessing, the people are witnessing these three phenomenon, they likely would have been remembering, they'll be remembering this other great phenomenon that happened in God's history to his people. This another pivotal event that had to do with a lot of languages and a lot of chaos. It happened in Genesis chapter 11, known as the Tower of Babel. And in Genesis chapter 11, it says that now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And the people said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. In their pride, this is what God's people said. They said, look at how good we are. Let us build a tower that reaches up to heaven and makes our way to have residence with God because we are so good that we should dwell with God in his presence. That's how good we are. Why are we living down here on earth? We should be with God. So let's make our way to God. They were filled with self-love. They were filled with self-sufficiency. They thought they were so good, good enough to live on the same plane with God through their own ingenuity and success. And so they desired to make their way to God through their own striving. And God said, not so much. And the Bible says that he confused their language and he gave to the people different languages, and they became confused. They could no longer communicate, and so they spread out into their own languages. And they could no longer understand one another. Pentecost is the deliberate and dramatic reversal of the Tower of Babel. At Babel, human languages were confused and nations were scattered. In Jerusalem at Pentecost, language barrier was supernaturally overcome as a sign to the nations that they would be gathered in Christ. At Babel, sinful people proudly tried to make their way to God. And at Pentecost, God humbly made his way to his people. At Babel, the people said, let's strive to be with God. And at Pentecost, we see, even in spite of our striving, God graciously gave himself to us to stop our striving. The worst of humanity is our sinful desire and our pride to make ourselves great in an attempt to be with God. 
Isn't that what we do? We want to be with God. We want to be forgiven. We want to have a relationship with God. We want to be accepted. And so we, we try to do good. We turn over a new leaf. We start a new chapter in our life. We, start, we, we make amends with people we have hurt. We make promises to ourselves like, I will never do that again. You're building a tower to be with God. And it never works. Where does it leave you? It leaves you discouraged when you fail. It leaves you prideful when you actually do a good job. You become puffed up with pride or you become dejected with shame. Pentecost is God's gift to us. The best of the gospel of heaven is God humbly descending to us in an act of grace to give himself to us and says, stop your striving. Stop your striving and enjoy the gift of my presence and love for you. And when Peter got finished telling this story, because I believe all of those things, they're thinking and they're, they're, they're understanding the significance of all that God has said and what would happen when the new kingdom was coming and God's presence was coming on their people and the Holy Spirit was poured out and the reversal of the Tower of Babel, Peter finishes his sermon, he steps back, and Luke says they were cut to the heart. Dead silence, cut to the heart. What does it mean? What does it mean? They were filled with a great conviction and awareness that everything that God said was going to happen was happening in that moment. And then they say, what do we do? <laughs> Two good questions. Last week we studied two very bad questions that the, that, the, that the disciples asked. Today we ask very good questions. What does it mean? What do we do? Peter says, repent. You need to change the way we, you think about Jesus. You need to change the way you think about God. Completely change your mind about Jesus and your attitude towards him and what it means to be good to be faithful, to follow him, to be spiritual. You need to change your mind. And you need to trust in him. And you need to be baptized. You need to submit yourself to him. You need to come under his lordship and care. You need to signify in your baptism, your dying to yourself of this self-love and self-sufficiency and raising again to new life that God has provided for you, a new life that has come from the outside into your life. Receiving that promise of God that he will be faithful to you forever, even if you stumble, even if you fail. You need to signify in your own life what Christ has done for you. Stop trying to climb yourself to God. Stop trying to climb your way to God through your own work. He has come down to you. That's what you need to do. The good news is not only what Jesus did, it's what he offers. That is what Peter is saying. So they're saying, what do we do? It is not just in what Jesus has done for you. In this gift, it's what he offers. And he tells them, this is what you need to do. This is a promise from God to you. What's the gospel at Pentecost? That we are not dependent on our own resources and character for forgiveness. 
What is the gospel, the good news at Pentecost? We're not dependent on our own ingenuity, our own creativity, our own communication skills. We are not reliant on the quality of our strategies or programs as a church to be people as, uh, that are faithful witnesses. And ultimately what Pentecost means is this, is that we do not pin our hopes to anything that we can do humanly or earthly, but we pin our hopes to everything that Jesus has done and what he gives to us. That's the good news of Pentecost. Good news of God's coming to us. His love for us. I pray you would be filled with the fullness of his presence. That you would be encouraged as you face reality of who you are and your unworthiness and the fullness of his grace and love for you. And you would be filled with joy that people think you are drunk. In a way. Let's pray.